Welcome to episode 13 of Writers Festival Radio, Lies That Tell Us Truth. This episode features three novels that examine the lies and truths at the heart of our most intimate relationships. We'll be hearing from Shani Mutu, Mona Awad, and Farzana Doctor. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. We'll begin with a conversation between poet Manahil Bandukwala, winner of Rooms 2019 Emerging Writer Award, and Shani Mutu, whose latest novel, Polar Vortex, is on the shortlist for the 2020 Giller Prize. Shani's an award-winning author and longtime friend of the festival. She participated in our very first edition back in 1997 when her novel, Serious Blooms at Night, took the world by storm. Shani's other critically acclaimed novels include Moving Forward Sideways Like a Crab, Valmiki's Daughter, He Drowned She in the Sea, and she's an accomplished visual artist. Here's a little taste of Polar Vortex, followed by their conversation. In hindsight, I can say that when I was with Lovers B.E., before Alex, that is, I saw not them per se, but my own reflection. I related my life to them in stories and I recounted past personal dramas in detail. I have no memory if any of them ever told me theirs. If they did, I might well not have been listening. They provided me with opportunities to hear my story every so often as I related to them how I had grown in life and how each new experience gave me a finer understanding of how I became the person I now was. Lovers BA provided me, in other words, the chance to give form to myself. With Alex, on the other hand, The old tendency to command space and time with stories about myself dissipated. When she would ask me about my past, I found myself newly bored by my own tales. The same ones I'd repeated elsewhere, wording and structures honed for desired responses. I wanted instead to be regaled by her. Such a thing hadn't happened before. It unsettled me. This drive to know every detail of her past seemed more powerful than sex. And I knew instinctively it was a sign that she was the person for me, for life. But that morning when Prakash's message arrived, hi, write me. The old shape-shifting that was once required of me to survive resurfaced. Even if I no longer need him, his reappearance, coming at a time when Alex and I have tended to be off in our own worlds, had the effect of igniting in me that old feeling that I couldn't let him get too far away from me. For one cannot ever be certain about what one's future may hold. Although I didn't respond to him immediately, it wasn't long after his name lit up in my inbox that I began to wonder if the calm in which Alex and I lived was possibly a veneer beneath which lurked a disquieting incompatibility. 
And in other moments, I had an indestructible conviction that she and I were solid enough to endure the harshest of storms. There were moments then that I imagined showing her off to him and him to her. Thank you so much um, for sharing that and the excerpt you read. Uh, Priya talks a lot about memory and um, how she's not so interested in that. It could be um, her love for Alex and wanting to really focus on the present, but on the other hand, her avoidance of the past. You know, it's interesting as um, the more I talk about Priya in, you know, these kinds of interviews and, um, and um, on, in these panels and things like that, the more I'm actually understanding my own process. You know, when you enter it, as a writer, you will know this, um, you enter the process, the writing, and you get caught up in the head of the character and you follow the character. Once you start directing the character, um, you know, it, it, the, character, the character begins to break down. So you, you, you stand back as the writer and you just, it's almost like you're recording what they're, what they're telling you to record. And then you go back and you fix it and so on. But there is, what I'm realizing is that my impulse as a listener, while I'm writing, I'm listening to Priya. And my impulse as a listener and recorder what I'm saying right now is making me think of the man who is recording um, the, the women in Women Talking by Miriam Taves. He's listening, he's interpreting, and he's trying to balance that interpretation with what he's listening and how he's recording, right? And so in a kind of a way, I think that that, that is what I, I was doing with Priya. And when I, when I, put down what Priya is doing, I am also seeing and weighing in my mind what she is, what she's doing. And I'm writing that as well. So there's a kind of a, a back and forth between the character and me, but me trying to keep in step with her and explain what, what, um, why she's making the decisions she's making or why she's weighing something. So you get all the sides of her because I can see them as a writer. And, but at the same time, because this is such a close writing of the character, so, so close in the first person, I have to keep out of it. I have to keep in her character. That, that was a challenge. But um, yeah, in, in talking with you now, I'm realizing that there is some of that um, trying to stay really, really close to her and at the same time um, not simply present what she wants to present to the world, but, but, but um, bear what's, um, what's in her mind at the same time. I don't want to give away the end, but just when I was reading it and I reached that end, um, I felt that same shock that Priya did even though I was thinking I, I shouldn't have, you know, and, and even Priya, she was um, seeing all of these signs um, 
of what was coming. Well, there's a kind of um control, uh, not in a, not in any kind of sinister way, but she's she's kind of um controlling, you know, herself, her life, all the all the um all the things that could possibly go wrong could go right. She's really in control, and she's been doing this for so long that when it begins to unravel, she she's surprised and shocked. But then she looks back and she sees, she realizes, she sees, oh, this is, um, this is a natural consequence. Yeah. Yeah. But, but even in that moment, you know, in the very last moment, without giving away what happens, she blames not keeping the bird feeders full, you know. One of the things that I find difficult with fiction is that, Often it feels to me as if um, characters behave in service in service um, of the plot. And when I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't plan to be a, a writer. I was a visual artist and video maker and so on. And um, when I was asked to write Serious Blooms at Night, I didn't know what I was doing. And I kind of had to figure it out, like, on the go. It's not like I had, you know, um, been um, practicing writing, um, you know, like, um, diligently for years and so on. So I had to figure it out on, on the go. And one of the things I did was basically let the story unfold as it happened, it's also right. I went on a journey with the story. I discovered the story as I was writing it. And in the other novels, the ones in between Sirius and Polar Vortex, I when I when when you see Sirius did very very well, and suddenly I was a writer. But um, but but in the truth, in that moment, I felt, oh my gosh, I need to learn how to write now. And what I did was I created, um, I, I did things that I was told that writers do. You create plots and so on, you know, and uh, I, I tried to do that. I'm not very good at that with that because I get bored very easily. If I know what's going on, I lose interest. But with Polar Vortex, I had to, I went back to the process in Serious Blooms at Night and I had to, um, I, I discovered the story uh, one step at a time, one change of Priya's mind to the next at a time. But she was not in the service of a plot. Her behavior was not in the service of a plot. I was actually following her. And that, what that allowed me to do was to take something that she said or did or remembered, and in my own mind as the writer as well, was, was to say, um, yes, this is how it's going. Do we know if she's telling the truth or not? It could possibly go this way. And at the same time, it's almost as if Priya were revealing to me those same thoughts. Well, I'm saying this, but perhaps this is what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, it starts with like this almost snippet-like structure. And there's just a lot of different snippets of Priya's life with Alex. Her past is very tantalizing. Um, like she's giving little details. This was a novel that was very easy for me to get into because I was like, oh, I'll just I'll just read 
this one page and then I can put my bookmark in and leave. And I kept kind of going through that process and I've read 50 little snippets that are each a page long and now I'm hooked into this, into this novel. Yeah, but you know, you, you know that piece that I read, that, that I just read, she says, um, she says that when she met lovers, when she, her lovers before um, Alex, she would tell them little bits about her life and, you know, it sort of created who she was. She was creating herself for them and creating herself for herself. And in a way, Priya is doing that at the beginning of the book before the reader actually knows or sees what's happening. Um, the reader has to read the book to know the whole truth of what's going on. But at first, uh, it's almost as if Priya is talking to the reader saying, well, this is who I was and, you know, this. And she's kind of like uh, creating herself and making herself out to be, uh, you know, innocent and very cool in this way and that way. But as you read on, you realize, oh, wait a minute, there, there are cracks here. I also really wanted to ask you about your practice as a visual artist. And in 2015 and 2016, like you did this series of paintings off like Southern Ontario landscape, these really, uh, really beautiful, vibrant abstracts. Um, and Polar Vortex is also set in kind of that Southern Ontario landscape. And I feel like in both cases, in some ways you're taking um, this landscape and depicting it through different art forms. Okay, well, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but it really is the response in, um, to your question. Um, a few years ago, uh, before Vidya Naipaul died, V.S. Naipaul, I was at dinner with him at uh, my aunt's house. They're related to my family. So I was at his sister's house and he and I were speaking and he said to me, um, he basically challenged me, he said, why are you constantly writing about back home? Why don't you write about, you know, in, not in so many words, uh, uh, but, and, and that really got me thinking um, he was uh, curmudgeonly and said a little bit more than that. But what I took away was, you know, maybe I need to really um, be where I am. And the other thing that I keep thinking is that constantly um, pra being praised for writing about our back homes keeps us from the being where we are. And um, those back home places, they inform who I am and what my, my, you know, like the stories I tell and so on. But there is a way that I think that we are, as writers and artists, we're constantly being forced to be, um, be foreign, to be immigrant. I've been here for such a long time that I wanted to, um, I, I, I want to be, I want to be seen. And the other thing is that, um, you know, I was born in Ireland. I grew up in Trinidad. But when I took out Canadian citizenship, I lost my Trinidadian citizenship. So I am not even, uh, you know, um, eligible to read at events in Trinidad and stuff like that. So, so it's very, very odd. Like my whole life is, is so informed by Trinidad. And yet I am not, uh, I'm not really there anymore. 
where my family is, my heart is. But And I applied for a Chalmers fellowship and I got the fellowship and it was about trying to understand citizenship and landscape through language and imagery and poetry and so on. And what I wanted to do, I, you know, because I, I know that I used to know the plants and the names of them, how they grew, where they grew, you know, all kinds of things. And I wanted to have that same relationship. Now, hey, in Canada. Now, the thing is, when I was in, living in Toronto, um, that was a bit more difficult. You couldn't get out so easily. And But living here in, um, in the country, um, I, I could do that. I was closer to water, closer to nature, you know. Um, and... Uh, that's what I wanted to also try to do in writing. So my in my photography and in my painting, I was like, you know, I would even take um, the leaf of a plant that here up in, in southern Ontario um, and paint very large, uh, maybe 40 inches by 40 inches, um, painting a canvas that size with about one inch of the leaf you know, like studying one inch of the leaf. It was almost a meditative kind of thing and um, for the eyes, for the brain, for the heart. And um, in photography, I was doing that as well. In polar vortex, I tried, I, I tried to do it in moving forward sideways like a crab as well to write um, some of the, um, the, the winter and in polar vortex, I wanted to match that winter also with um, with the landscape, the countryside landscape. I read an interview where you talked about kind of having to like shake off that label of being an immigrant. Shake it off. I don't know that we can shake it off. You know, um, it's something that's given to us, to us by others, unless we promote it ourselves as well. You know, because it is something that one can take advantage of. But I don't know if it really serves us very well in the long run. You know, in the short run it might, but in the long run you have to keep performing this otherness. And I think this outsiderness, this constantly wanting to belong. And, and being an exile, you know, an exile, not um, not not in the serious political way that um, some people are, but like we perform these things, and I think that that can only have a mental kind of um, a, a bad sort of mental effect and health effect on us. And I, I want to be one hundred percent, you know. Um, happy and free where I am. And um, that's easier said than done because from the outside, there are people who don't want you to be. And so you're fighting that, you're fighting the two things, you know. Um, I found the switch to Alex's perspective in the novel really interesting because you kind of see um, how Priya is navigating that insider-outsider space. from her perspective, um, like there's one scene where Alex is recalling um, them sitting around um, dinner with uh, their friends and everyone's just sharing stories and being really excited about these common experiences and Priya um, doesn't feel like she can interject because hers are different and 
because people want to share that commonality she is it's 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 one of those things where it's it's no one's fault it's just that's how it happens yeah well you know it's so easy in these kinds of stories to make one race out to be intolerant and uh, and or the other race to be the victim or the you know this that and the other and there are so many sides of us um of the same person in one minute we may be you know the super negative kind of character but you you get together with someone Priya has gotten together with Alex. She didn't get together with Alex because Alex was um was, you know, obnoxious and racist and all of that. So there are things there so so I wanted to write a character who was not a parody, who was not already known to the audience based on the fact that this is a a novel by a person of color and an immigrant to the country and about these two other immigrants of color so you would think okay well the white character is going to be this that yeah i and i wanted to actually try to get into this person's head in the same way that i tried to do it with jonathan in moving forward sideways like a crab to 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 see what it is that they themselves know they must pay attention to you know i i wanted to try and also to try to to find the parts of them where they are struggling and to write that as well there are parts where she wants to be able to reach out and help priya but there yeah priya is not able to reciprocate that well you know um i i think um there is that desire to meet in the middle after writing the novel after it was published and after getting a number of questions from various people and so on it did have me thinking um why i wrote um things now i'm not always conscious of why i am writing i'm like really um you know sort of um channeling these characters and the situation and i'm moving with it and trying to be honestly inside of it as 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 yeah as truthfully as i can meet them and then afterwards of course one can ask as other re- readers have asked why why did um why did priya behave the way she behaved um you know in the relationship with alex what happened you know um is it alex's fault what the answer that i am coming up with the answer it's also a question is there are things about prakash from his early days as an immigrant here and there are things about priya that create who they are that created who they are in the present not their early lives in their home countries their previous back home countries but how they had to negotiate immigration and integration and they um they 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 spend so much time trying to become and whatever they're becoming it's almost it's almost a construction that is false 
you know, they don't really know who they are. They have this sense that they may be this or that, but they, they cannot truly be that for all kinds of reasons. And then I, I wonder, this is one of the reasons, you know, I wonder if in some ways immigration breaks us or broke us. I'm a different generation than you. Um, is immigration any easier for you than it was for me? For me as a queer person as well, is it easier today for an immigrant? And is it easier for an immigrant who is queer? I don't know. But I feel as if it's possible, but had life been earlier, we might have been different people. And is that what cause the difficulties between Alex and Priya? In my academic research, I'm really interested in that question of immigration and then belonging. And when I immigrated, it's it's like you have the internet, you can be in touch with people. That nostalgia and belonging of home just is kind of shaken up. Um, for queer people for whom home also holds violence and kind of pushes them out. Even even now, things are changing so much. Like, for instance, um, I was thinking of some of what you just said. The pandemic has co- caused my family, we're spread out across Canada, um, England, and Trinidad. And we have been in touch with each other as a family more than we have been in the last uh, 30 years or 40 years, you know. We're having like weekly Zoom meetings where there were um, uh, like 16 little, um, you know, um, uh, squares on the screen and we're all talking over each other and stuff like that. So there's, is in this moment more of an opportunity for me to... um, to touch my Trinidad roots more regularly than I have had in the past. And yet at the same time, this very Zoom thing is making me see how how far away and how different I have become. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Manahil Bandukwala in conversation with Shani Mutu. Up next, we have a conversation between author, poet, and editor Rhonda Douglas and Mona Awad. Mona's first book, 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and won the Amazon Canada First Novel Award. Her latest novel, Bunny, explores what happens when an outsider is suddenly invited into a clique of unbearably twee rich girls. Here's the opening paragraphs of Bunny, followed by their conversation. We call them bunnies because that is what they call each other. Seriously, bunny. Example, hi, bunny. Hi, bunny. What did you do last night, bunny? I hung out with you, bunny. Remember, bunny? That's right, bunny. You hung out with me, and it was the best time I ever had. Bunny, I love you. I love you, bunny. And then they hug each other so hard, I think their chests are going to implode. I would even secretly hope for it from where I sat, stood, leaned in the opposite corner of the lecture hall, department lounge, auditorium, bearing witness to four grown women, my academic peers, cooingly strangle each other hello or goodbye or just because you're so amazing, bunny. 
How fiercely they gripped each other's pink and white bodies, forming a hot little circle of such rib-crushing love and understanding, it took my breath away. And then the nuzzling of ski-jump noses, peach-fuzzy cheeks, temples pressed against temples in a way that made me think of the labial rubbing of the bonobo or the telepathy of beautiful, murderous children in horror films. All eight of their eyes shut tight as if this collective asphyxiation were a kind of religious bliss. All four of their glossy mouths making squealing sounds of monstrous love that hurt my face. I love you, bunny. I quietly prayed for the hug implosion all year last year, that their ardent squeezing might cause the flesh to ooze from the sleeves, neck holes, and A-line hems of their cupcake dresses like so much inane frosting, that they would get tangled in each other's Game of Thrones hair, choked by the ornate braids they were forever braiding into each other's heart-shaped little heads, that they would choke on each other's blandly grassy perfume. Never happened. Not once. They always came apart from these embraces intact and unwounded, despite the ill will that poured forth from my staring eyes like so much comic book villain venom. Smiling at one another, swinging clasped hands, skins aglow with affection and belonging as though they'd just been hydrated by the purest of mountain streams. Bunny, I love you. Completely immune to the disdain of their fellow graduate student, me, Samantha Heather Mackey, who is not a bunny, who will never be a bunny. So great. That's just, you know, perfect first page. Well, let's kick off with um, a question about the dynamics between the bunnies and Samantha or Sam. So it, it felt to me like it's it's very classic um, kind of passive-aggressive, ranging over to a very aggressive, taking down of, you know, women taking down other women. And then one of the bunnies at one point is um, working on something, a piece of writing described as post-feminist. So I wanted to ask you if there was any kind of critique you were intending about how women are with other women in, you know, God forbid, what we could call a post-feminist world. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, I, I feel like there are times when I feel like perhaps we're not entitled to the full range of our emotions, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and to kind of close off the darker um, aspects of, of what we might be feeling. Um, and then how that then kind of ends up coming out as this rather sinister sounding sweetness, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in that and how sweetness can carry these other things. Um, and how it, you know, inevitably does because we've just been conditioned to not, not feel comfortable speaking freely, not feel comfortable with conflict, you know? Um, so I, I loved playing with that in Bunny because it's something that I, I do find really disturbing that, that we do. You know, um, and I, I like the idea that my, my hope is that, you know, we just women can just acknowledge the fact that, you know, we're we're people. <laughs> we're going to feel a number of different things. Complex range of emotions. Exactly. And some of them are ugly and that's OK. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Wow. OK. I got to the end and I read your acknowledgments and you um, thanked your some folks in your fiction cohort at the University of Denver where you did your Ph.D. And I thought, OK, wow, if she workshopped that, that would have been potentially awkward. Um, so did you workshop it there? And, you know, how 
in terms of the critique that's in the novel around the MFA experience, I'm going to ask you where you're coming down on the great MFA debate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's a great question, especially now, considering the fact that I teach in an MFA program, so mm-hmm. I have graduate <laughs> students of my own. Um, you know, I think that, uh, that it was received very well, uh, for one thing, when I did, because uh, I feel like we can all kind of laugh a little at at um, at these kinds of programs, you know? I mean, there is something funny about uh, about academia in general, and then using logic, using, like, you know, um, the frame of an institution to talk about something like art, it's hard, you know, and it's just, it ends up kind of being funny, you know, and then, you know, you're ultimately reading other people when you're in a very vulnerable state yourself, everybody is feeling competitive with each other. Um, you know, you're sharing work, um, you're having to read other people's work inevitably because we're human and we're flawed. And again, complex range of feelings, right? Um, it just, I just think there's just so much potential for us to really just be reading each other in these cloaked ways, um, you know, that can often be very passive aggressive. And that definitely comes out in Bunny, you know, Mm -hmm. um, your own fears, your own biases, your own secret desires will always come out, uh, when you're critiquing another person's work, you know, Mm -hmm. how you feel about your own work is going to come out in, in how you critique. So I really wanted to have fun with that. But the reception that I got from Denver from my cohort when I was workshopping Bunny was overwhelmingly positive. Um, and they were really, you know, just took it in such like good spirit. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have asked for better. In terms of like MFA versus not MFA, you know, I, I went to school, um, back to school for my MFA when I was a little bit older than most because I was in my um, mid 30s. Um, and most of my cohort, co- cohort was younger than me. Um, and so I really knew when I went in there, I went in there to write 13 ways. I went in there to finish it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd been struggling with it for four years. Um, and I just, this was kind of my last shot, you know, I was working full time before then, and I just wanted to give it a real chance. And so I knew what I was working on. I was halfway done. Uh, I was older, so I had a very strong sense of my own voice and, you know, I think I, I think I, it was a good program for me because of that. I was able to kind of distance myself from feedback that I felt wasn't helpful. I was able to really treat it like just um, funded time to write. And, um, and so brilliant, right? Like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) who wouldn't want, and I took it extremely seriously. I mean, I worked, I worked so hard for those two years. I mean, I, you know, wrote so many versions of those stories, like again and again, until I felt like I'd gotten it right. Um, So for me, it was a really good experience, but I can see if you're younger um, and maybe you haven't, you don't have quite a sense of what your project is. You don't quite have a sense of what your voice is. Um, Maybe you're, um, you're, the way that you receive feedback would be a little bit more, shaping of like what you end up putting on the page, you know, influential, then I would think, yeah, there's potential for that to go awry. And that's kind of like what I was exploring in Bunny because my character is much younger, you know, she's in her twenties and she is vulnerable, you know, and she isn't certain of her voice. And so it's kind of exploring the potential horror novel that, that that could be for somebody who is vulnerable, but imaginative hasn't found their voice, doesn't quite have faith in themselves yet, and then puts themselves in that position, you know? 
Right, right. And so speaking of horror novel, yeah. um, so Bunny is, you know, it reads as literary fiction, satire, horror, fairy tale, mm-hmm. um, outright comedy at times, you know, and it's all of these things. It's everything all at once. So I'm curious if you started the book intending it to be in one firm direction, or were you from the start just embracing that, um, the whole whole picture of that and um, the merging of those? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think because the, you know, for me, it, it was all about kind of capturing um, the lived experience of somebody who lives in their imagination. Um, and so because of that, because it's trying to capture this emotional, psychological reality, I could bend it in all of these really interesting ways in terms of genres that excited me, you know, um, because this character spins stories in her head and she can spin these dream come true stories, but she can also spin these super dark stories. She can create her own horror novel that she lives inside of and believes to be her reality. Um, So for me, it was always like, oh yes, I know this is going to have uh, fairy tale elements because this is a character who dreams and who lives in their head, um, but it's also gonna have these horror elements. Um, I think I probably went in more thinking about fairy tales than I did about horror. And then I think it became horror the deeper into it I went. Um, But I think the reason why it started off as fairy tales, because fairy tale already has those two components working in it already. It's already horrific. It's already can be quite violent, the transformations. And it also has this other like dream come true you know, um, like magical when you wish upon a star kind of narrative um, in it too, which I think she's being presented with as an imaginative person going to a program like an MFA program, wanting to create something and not knowing what the outcome will be. It could go either way, right? Um, So fairy tale was kind of a way into the horror and the wonder that I think are in the story. And then humor for me, it's always going to be there because, um, you know, and that has more to do. That's more a function of like, I just don't think you can write the emotional truth without humor. There's just no way that for me that that's possible. And, you know, anything that's horrific or scary is also funny. And everything that's funny is also potentially scary because I think they can come from the same place. So I, I want maybe to ask you to expand a bit on that because, you know, the, the gothic fairy tale elements of the book are really contrasted against the, the cute. And cute has its own agenda, right? It's not all rainbows and, and unicorns. To me, they're kind of um, two sides of the same coin um, because I am really, really, and I mean, I've said this before, but I'm really frightened by my um, my interest in cute things. And I'm really frightened by cute things, uh, the power of them, you know, uh, they are- oh, Give me so, some examples. What do you mean? Like, like Hello Kitty or- Hello Kitty is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, Hello Kitty is absolutely terrifying. Just like even the way that she's drawn is terrifying to me. Um, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, all of that cute stuff. I actually have like something like that right on my desk. I have like a little to remind me, <laughs> I'm just holding up like a cute cat. But um, but yeah, there is something there is something sinister to me in the cute, and it might have to do with um, what we were talking about earlier with the ways in which um, women can sometimes cloak um, feelings that they don't want to own own in like niceties, um, which makes me then feel like I can't trust what what's being said. 
Um, so I, I really wanted to amplify that. The bunnies are kind of like, oh, they're so sweet on the surface, but what if, what if there was this other darker like side to this whole thing? And that's where my mind always goes. Anytime I see something sweet, I always wonder what if, <laughs> what if there's a nightmare lurking in there? Uh, so very close together for me. So, um, it just, it was so fun to read in parts. I mean, it was terrifying in other parts. It was, you know, viscerally terrifying in other parts. Right. But I, at times I thought, oh my God, she must be having such a good time writing this. Like, were you, or was, were there parts of it that were also challenging? Oh, there were definitely parts that were challenging, but yeah, it was a blast. I mean, you know, 13 Ways was such a struggle because um, it was my first book. Um, you know, I didn't have the same... I, I didn't have the same experience. So I was, and I was writing about something that I was writing in a realist, um, you know, mode, um, which is different. Um, and so, you know, it felt that that book was very challenging. And when I came to the end of it, um, I didn't miss it. I was, I was happy I had written it, but I didn't miss the world of it. Um, I still miss the world of Bunny. I still miss being in it, creating it, sitting with it every day. Um, it felt very alive to me. And the process of writing it was, was actually very organic. The first draft, I wrote it in three months, just sitting right over there at like my, my uh, dining room table, just every morning. Um, what was challenging was the revision, um, the second draft. Uh, it was fine for a while. Uh, my process is usually that I'll, I'll write a first draft very quickly, and then I'll go back and I'll live in the scenes and flesh them out, flesh them out, add more and more layers. But I got really tripped up um, two thirds of the way through the book and actually stopped for a while because I couldn't see my way forward. Um, so that was that was very agonizing because I didn't know that I would finish it. I had like a real breakdown about it. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Uh, but I did. I did. I did get through it. I just I wish I could have told myself that I wish future me could go back and tell that person it'll be OK because I really didn't know that it would, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about Samantha and her loneliness which is yeah. so deep and just you know feels like it drives so much of the story mm. I wondered how much of that was really about what it's like just to be a writer whether you're in or outside of an MFA program oh yeah I think it is a very lonely life um you know I, and I do think that it was drawn from my own tendency because I mean I think I've always been a bit of a loner myself you know, it's always kind of been where I come alive is like in my imagination, you know, um, that's where I feel like, I feel like my imagination is kind of a companion. I mean, it's a dangerous place too, which is what Bunny explores, that it can be both a consolation and a really dangerous portal. Um, but yeah, I think the loneliness um, activates so much of the plot in Bunny. It's what creates everything. Um, and even her relationship with the bunnies in so many ways is informed by her own sense of her outsiderness, you know, her own sense of alienation from, from them, from the world of the school, everyone. Yeah, and she is, you know, she's very much an outsider character. Um, and I, I think I was both expecting and a little shocked when she kind of moved closer to the bunnies in the second part of the book. And um, it, the whole book turns on her desire to be part of them and yet feeling repelled. What is it that you think is so compelling about an outsider character in literature generally? Well, they're capable of anything. 
that's what's the most fun about them narratively, that they can do anything. They can go in a number of different directions. And so I love the, the idea. I mean, from the very start, even from that, what I read, even though she's expressing disdain and anger, you can tell already that she's completely fixated and even perhaps attracted you know, um, to these girls. Um, and so that she is ultimately very vulnerable to their power and probably could easily be led down that rabbit hole, which she is. Um, so I just love that. I think that, that, that yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's exciting to work with a character who could, who is capable of anything. And I do think that when you're vulnerable like that, when you're a little bit thin skinned and you're imaginative and you, you know, it's very, you are kind of somebody who could be capable of anything. So plot-wise, super fun to have a character like that. Right, yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the the drafts or the created void yeah. that happen once yeah. um, she does join hands uh, with the bunnies? So their hands and their genitals don't quite work, but they give <laughs> elaborate literary compliments and foot massages. So you know, not so bad. Um, but what is it that the drafts are intended to represent? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are, you know, so the bunnies basically conjure um, these male companions for themselves out of bunnies, um, which is definitely playing with a couple of fairy tale tropes, you know, a Beauty and the Beast fairy tale tropes for sure. Um, the idea that, you know, this beast will actually become a companion, a mate. Um, but you know they're basically the pets of the bunnies um, because they're only capable of so much. As you've pointed out, they're kind of like flawed. They don't have hands, uh, you know, like or at least like defined hands. So they have to wear these gloves. They don't have genitals. So like their companionship with the bunnies can only go so far if they're looking for romantic companionship. Um, and you know, I guess I was kind of having fun with the idea that these are these are artists who want to control the outcome. You know, they, they want to create something, but they also want to control it. And if you if you make art, <laughs> at least I guess this is like expressing my philosophy about art making and creativity. If you make art wanting to control the outcome, you're going to get something flat and not alive. Um, and if you make art kind of treating it like it's like a person, this is, George Saunders has talked about this. But if you if you treat it like it's like a loved one, you know, then it will surprise you with the degree to which it has life, you know? And so Samantha, she is an unconscious creator. Um, and so her creations have a kind of life that the bunnies creations just can't have. Those bunny men, they can only be pets. They can only be like little monsters, you know? They're never gonna have, they're never gonna be fully fleshed people because their makers don't want that. Are you an Echo and the Bunnymen fan by any chance? Yeah, I did have have a few of their songs um, on a playlist that I made for Bunny. They were really fun to listen to. Oh, you had a playlist as you were writing. Oh, I always do. But yeah, my Bunny playlist is epic. It's so long. Yeah, that's awesome. So what kind of things are on it? Uh, The Cramps is on it. Mm -hmm. Um, What else is on it? Um, A lot of like feet. Well, Heart, of course, is on it. Of course. Of course. Scott Thompson is on it. Mancini is on it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was so fun. I mean, I, I just, I, that's, that's a way for me. I mean, I'm sure like a lot of other creative people do this too, but when I'm stepping away from my desk, I still, I'm still thinking about it. And so the music kind of helps me still dream about it and define it, flesh it out, you know? 
Yeah. And I'm curious how you balanced that, and I, both in the draft, but maybe more so in the revision, um, balanced out what feels real in the book um, with what feels um, imagined or even drug-induced. What were you trying for there? Yeah, it was, you know, it was very, very tricky because I definitely wanted the reader to not read it as metaphor um, or strictly as metaphor. Definitely there's a metaphorical reading all the way to the very end. Um, but I wanted the the reader to really feel it. I, I One of my pet peeves is fabulism that feels flimsy, fabulism that feels like thin. I really don't like that. I like like very visceral kind of like worlds, even if they're made up. You know, and so um, so it was important to me for it to be like visceral, but for the, the for whether or not it was actually really happening to still to be unclear, simply because the deeper into the book that you go, the deeper into Samantha's consciousness you go, the more she is becoming manipulated by her surroundings in these different ways. And so we can't fully trust her reality, but it is the rea- it is reality for her. There's no question about that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely visceral. I mean, it's fantastic in that way. Um, I wanted to ask about the city in which Warren University, which is the the university that this MFA program takes place at, um, it's situated in a city that struck me as um, almost like an Ivy League Gotham city. Like it's so violent somehow. And why was that important to you to do that as opposed to a kind of like bucolic Ivy League town, you know? Well, this is the horrible thing about living in America. Um, but, you know, when I did go to Brown um, and I did live in Providence, I was struck by how polarized the city was racially and in terms of um, economics. Um, it is a violent place. There is a lot of crime. Um, the school does exist in a kind of bubble that maybe even perpetuates some of these things in a very bad way. So the school is kind of toxic, you know? Um, so that it was, and, and that, and, and Brown's Brown and Providence are not the only, uh, uh, it's not the only example of that. There's, you know, Yale is famous for that. In fact, some of the stuff, some of the, um, like the decapitations and stuff I took from urban legends around Yale, oh, wow. uh, as opposed to Brown, but, but, you know, people don't talk about it, or maybe some people talk about it, but these towns are actually really dangerous and scary where there are Ivy League institutions. Um, And I think that like informs the Ivy League experience, like the fact that it's this like occult place of like, this kind of knowledge that not everybody has access to, these doors that not everybody is allowed to go through, you know, and yet it's fraught outside, you know, it's like, it just adds to the myth of like, a kind of education and a kind of access being held in like a very, like, I don't know, it's only for the few. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really wanted to enhance the danger. And then I, I also, Providence was very inspiring. You know, I mean, it's a very Gothic city. Edgar Allan Poe spent a lot of time there. Lovecraft obviously buried there. Um, so the, the, those kinds of spirits were with me the whole time I was doing my MFA and, you know, I really wanted to revisit the place in my imagination, not literally, <laughs> but, you know, um, so it was fun that way too. Um, so I thought I read somewhere that it has been optioned for TV. Yeah. It's not surprising. I mean, the images are so, the scenes are so vivid. Do you think, like, how do you think it's going to translate? How's that going to work? It's a really great question because um, the um, 
the network that bought it, which was AMC, um, bought it for television, so for multiple seasons. So I've always been curious um, as to how they'll extend it past the this one school year, because the book takes place over one school year, begins in September, ends with graduation. Um, I wonder how they'll extend it, but the writer, the the who is a playwright, and she's really good, and she's also been a showrunner for them for other shows. Um, Megan Moston Brown is her name. I read her pilot, and I can see her in the pilot planting seeds. Like she's making a lot more of the town, and she's making a lot more of the fact that the the bunnies have have created these like little monsters. Um, so because yeah, so, that's right, they've sort of left them hanging, yeah, you know, yeah. in basements and yeah, yeah. catering staffs and stuff. That's right, yeah. So, so I think she's kind of drawing on that to extend it past the one school year. So, so and is it in production now? Um, it's production? it's 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 written now. So now it's just a question of getting it greenlit for production, and the pandemic has kind of held that up a little bit. Yeah. going to be fun, though. Can't wait. That'll be a lot of fun. So, um, and you've got a new novel coming out in 2021. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And does it build on some similar themes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It definitely builds on 13 Ways and Bunny. I would say it's a cousin to both books. It's called All's Well. Um, and it is also set at a New England college. And it's about a, uh, a theater professor suffering from chronic pain. Uh, her name is Miranda, and um, she wants to put on a production of All's Well that ends well, but the students are mutinous, and they hate her, and they don't want to put it on. They want to put on Macbeth, and um, so long story short, she makes a, um, a dark bargain with malevolent forces to make sure that her show goes on. Um, so on stage, uh, she puts on All's Well, but off stage, she lives Macbeth. Um, wow, so fantastic. Yeah. That one, that's going to be great. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was really fun to write. I'll bet, I'll bet, yeah. So thank you so much, Mona, for taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you so much, Rhonda. That was Rhonda Douglas interviewing Mona Awad about her latest book, Bunny. Our next guest is Lambda Literary Award winner Farzana Doctor. Her new novel, Seven, bravely addresses the debate on katna, an age-old ritual of female genital cutting. David Cheriandi says Farzana Doctor is a writer of extraordinary wit, generosity, and ethical commitment. And Seven explores with courage and storytelling finesse the harsh truths within the ideals of kinship and community. She was interviewed by Manahil Bandukwala. In the evening, Mortaza and I meet on the couch for the married person's evening ritual, TV. Along with a nightly bowl of microwave popcorn, we've been putting away two episodes of The Mindy Project after Z is in bed. We guffaw and cringe in the same places. We are diasporic South Asian children of immigrants communing over the embarrassing life of a diasporic South Asian child of immigrants. While the credits roll, Mortiza leans over, kisses my neck, and says, Shall we turn it off now or watch another episode? Sure, Marthy, we can turn it off, I say, sensing his preference. After all, it is Saturday and 9 p.m. I'd prefer to hit play to be distracted by someone else's awkward world, but I appreciate my husband's good-natured and consistent initiative taking. 
My friends and I talk about our lackluster sex lives and waning libidos, and I feel like I'm the lucky one amongst us. At least we can say we are still doing it rather than being in couples therapy because we aren't, or breaking up because we aren't, or having extramarital affairs because we aren't. Hi, uh, my name is Menahil Bandukwala, and I'm really excited to be here with Farzana Doctor. Uh, Farzana is a writer, activist, and psychotherapist. Uh, she's the author of four novels, Stealing the Stream, Six Meters of Pavement, All-Inclusive, and Seven, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, it's about inheritance and resistance that tests the balance between kinship and the fight against customs in the Dawdi Bora community that harm us. Um, the main character, Sharifa, accompanies her husband on a marriage-saving trip to India in 2016. Um, and when she's there, she learns about the practice of khatna, um, an age-old ritual of female genital cutting in the Dawdi Bora community. And she finds her family on opposite sides of the debate. And she's kind of navigating that space um, just throughout the novel. Um, so Farzana, I want to start uh, by saying just congratulations on the launch of this novel. I, um, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, uh, but I do want to mention how brave and necessary the novel is. It is the first novel to talk about the practice of khatna, uh, which is the word for female genital cutting in the Dawadi Bora community. Uh, we're both members of this community and you can be so insular. Um, khatna is such a taboo and hashtag subject within the community. So the strength and courage to talk about that just openly outside it, I, I really just want to recognize that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Minahu. And uh, yeah, it is a very taboo um, and silenced issue. I think all forms of female genital cutting in any community is so hushed up. And um, I really wanted to be able to augment my activist efforts by creating, um, you know, a beautiful novel. You know, I'm a novelist, so I like to create beautiful novels. But I also wanted to address the subject and create a contribution um, to this movement as well, and deepen people's understanding about all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, in, in the novel and also in real life, like Katna is multi-generational. Um, like women are victims of the violence, but they're also perpetrators of it. Um, and I think like the reasons why it's carried on um, is like you represent that with so much nuance. Um, there's like the three different characters. You have Sharifa and then you have her two cousins, um, Fatma and Zainab, and they're all just a different, um, like, where they are in relation to Khatna at the start of the novel, the journeys that they, take and where they end up is so varied. So I think that um, really uh, accesses and speaks to, yeah, just and reflects real life 
encounters and experiences with it because it's it's not just one thing. Yeah, and the nuance was really important to me. Um, you know, in my activist life, I can, you know, create tweets that say, you know, Katna is child abuse, right? But if you really want people to come along with you, people who don't know anything about the issue or people who do know things about the issue, but really haven't given it much thought, which I actually think is the vast majority of people in our community, they haven't given it much thought. They've just kind of gone along with it for generations. You have to be able to bring it along in a story. You have to bring them along in a story where they're exploring and you know, Sharifa is somebody who is a bit clueless um, about the whole subject um, from the beginning of the novel. And so I, I thought, you know, why not have her kind of slowly build her knowledge while the reader is slowly building their knowledge as well? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that with my own knowledge of Katna, it was really only a few years ago when um, there's a doctor in the States who was arrested and it that was when people started talking about it a bit more openly, but it was still um, very much like in these um, small circles and you just are so careful about what you say because you don't want to sound like you're opposing the, the Sayyidna, the religious leader by um, speaking against the practice yes and it's it's very interesting right this um this this fear that people have about opposing the Sayyidna and it comes up in the novel quite a bit too like even with Sharifa who isn't that observant um there is this kind of unspoken thing that she has learned over time that there, there that's a no-go zone we're not allowed to do that and um, even for me, you know, I, I grew up in a family where my father renounced the religion when he was a young man and my mother was lukewarm and then the rest of the family was all over the place. We have very orthodox people in the family as well. Even I had that trepidation to call out the Sayyidna and, and literally it doesn't matter at all in my life if I do or I don't because you know, my life won't be altered in any way, but there is this, there's this fear because the Sayyidna is treated almost um, like a godlike figure and we, we, we can't be blasphemous. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about your previous novels where the characters are Borat, reading them, it's like from, from their names, there's all of these little hints but it's it's not as um, outright as in in seven um, and yeah it's, it's funny because it's like is this you're not going to read seven <laughs> he, he absolutely won't right uh, he should he should he should read you know i will i should send a letter to the side now and ask him, I'll send a copy of the book to him. But, you know, um, just, yeah, in my previous books, it wasn't so obvious. And I think I have been hungering to talk about this community. I wrote an article in Chatelaine that um, talks about how I've been trying to understand all the, un the things I couldn't understand about our community. And I think I was doing that through writing, but um, a couple of my aunts warned me against 
bringing religion into the first novel. And I did a lot of editing and I got rid of the direct, some of the direct references to religion. So since then I backed off, but you know, since being an activist starting in 2015 and working on this issue, it just felt like, like what is this internal prohibition that I set for myself? Um, it, it's really meaningless and it's time. It's not just time for us to be talking about karma, but it's time for us to be talking about the impact of this very oppressive um, orthodoxy on its people. Definitely, and I'm, I'm thinking um, earlier in the summer, you were hosting the launch for Shaka Tajmeri's Keepers of the Faith, which is another book from the Bora community that is, is trying to call out this orthodoxy. And I just, I think it's really powerful um, that this literature is coming out because yeah, my own encounters with it, like my family's not exactly that. Um, yeah, they're, they're a bit all over the place um, when it comes to the community, but it's still this, you just feel like you have to keep quiet about it. Um, so in, in 2012, I was in India and um, one of my family members set up an interview for me to go meet um, one of the original leaders of the reform movement, Asghar Ali Engineer. He since passed. And I met with him and, you know, I was just filled with awe because I know how difficult that whole movement was. When I returned to uh, where I was staying, my uncle's house, he said, please don't put any of that on Facebook. And he's not a very religious, orthodox-minded person, but he said, if you put that on Facebook, there could be trouble. So just, just a meeting with the guy could be trouble. But what I've noticed since 2015, when we've been posting all of this stuff about Kutna, people are, have started to shift and they've taken a stand. And you know, family members, the same family member that who I'm talking about, has been reposting everything that I write about Kutna. So it's kind of like Kutna has been one of those issues where people are like, all right, we're fed up. Now, now we're willing to be critical of our religion. But before that, holy crap, people couldn't do anything. Now they're doing a little bit. So there is this moment. So yes, Shokat Ajmeri's book, my book, um, all the activism, I actually, I actually want to credit the activism for my book, for um, people being like people like Shokat being able to write the book, for people being able to post things publicly on Facebook. I think it's the activism that got that moving. I think so too, because I mean, I the first thing that I saw online that did call out um, some of the practices in the community, it was. Sehio, which is one of the groups that, um, one of the anti-FGM groups. So I think that that starting point, like again, just bringing these topics where people were in their personal lives, um, opposed to them, bringing those into this community space and thinking, okay, how do we, um, how do we, and this practice on a community-wide basis. And just um, as you were saying that, one of the lines that I absolutely love in Seven is when um, 
all the women are sitting in a tal and Fatma says to Sharifa's daughter, the best lesson a Bora girl can learn to question authority. And I just, that is just so, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that sentiment is so different from what we're taught. <laughs> yes, yes. None of us are taught that. And I think probably, you know, girls, non-binary folks growing up, none of us are taught anything around questioning authority in general, like globally, and especially not in our community. Um, I think I was a bit lucky in that I did grow up in a family where there was a lot more room to do that. Um, and I think that's probably what has enabled me to be, you know, this, this brave thing that people are talking about, you know, because I'm not, I'm not so negatively influenced and affected by people who will shut me up. Yeah. I have never before this book been interviewed or reviewed by anyone from my own community. And um, I think we need to be thinking about that a little bit because um, while all the reviews have been wonderful and I appreciate them all, of course, um, I have noticed the places where I think that perhaps the reader has misunderstood the work. And it's so gratifying when you know that the reader is understanding the work. I'm really excited to see how it has reached the conversation circles of Bora women my age, um, my mom and her friend circles. Like, it, it's a novel that explores um, just like multiple generations. And I just think it's really amazing that it's, reaching multiple generations of women in particular. I'm so glad that that's happening, you know, like because I really wondered how it would be taken up by the Bora community. And I still don't really know because I haven't talked to too many people. The book just came out, but I would be so curious to hear what they're thinking about as they're hearing about this book or if they've started reading the book, what, what they're saying. Uh, I was just talking about it with my mom, yesterday she just started reading it and actually one of the first things she said to me was there's a character with the last name Bandukwala in here and I think just for me as a reader it's like that's probably the only time I'm gonna see that in a book. Can I tell you can I tell you something funny about names because often often uh, people will worry that you're writing about them um, like I've had that with other books and I made a Facebook post very early on as I was writing this book saying, I'm really sorry, but like, you know, all the people in my family, you're going to, I'm going to have characters named after you and hopefully not the villains. Um, and there's no villain in this. There's, there's like 10 Bora names, <laughs> you know, there's, it's not a very big pool. That's right. And so I tried to pick surnames as well that were pretty common. Um, and and Bandukwa is fairly common, I think, or common enough to, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I think just, um, yeah, it's a novel that, that does, like, talk about a very serious issue, but there's also just a lot of places to, to kind of laugh, to enjoy this, um, the connections between characters. 
that there's a lot of small community humor and I don't think you have to be part of the community to know that it's funny. Like you'll, you'll find it funny even if you're not part of the community, but I'm, I'm hoping that the Boras get a, a laugh about some of the jokes, like, you know, the joke that everybody is a third or fourth cousin. I mean, another thing that was just so kind of funny reading this is my great great grandfather's name actually is Abdulali. I was again talking to my mom and she said, you know, I would not be surprised if um if Farzana doctor is like a third or fourth cousin somewhere in the line. <laughs> it's it's possible. And actually, you know, um that character is inspired by um Hassan Ali Dolkawala, who is my great great grandfather. And, um, you know, I started doing some oral history about him and really came to some dead ends, um, literally, figuratively. And um, I thought I would I really like to include him somehow in my writing, but it'll need to be fiction because he's a revered person in my family's life, right? In their, in their story. So I, and anyway, um, Real stories are never as fun as the fictional stories you can create. So his, so this is based on a guy named Hassan Ali, but his son was Abdul Ali. Really, really, who who knows? And I, I mean, just I think there's like definitely this commonality of experiences with Abdul Ali in the novel. He had four wives, um, three of them passed away. One of them was divorced. And my great grandfather also had four wives, three passed away, one was divorced. So it just, yeah, it was, it's like this, um, yeah, and maybe it's just like that, um, the way the community is. Yes. And at the time, that would have been a very similar history for women and maternal health was really terrible. Yeah. Um, so, so another thread, another reason for having this thread of this great great grandfather character was I really wanted to show how much all of um, all of these legacies get passed down, and we're still living with the legacies of our ancestors as it should be, right? Um, and I wanted to show that throughout the novel, and that's why he he pops in as a character periodically. Yeah, and um, just in terms of the novel structure, you there's the main um, storyline that follows Sharifa and her journey in India. And then there's also um, interludes of Abdulali's life. And it kind of slowly goes on to the life of his um, ex-wife, um, and and how she encounters like the the women in Sharifa's family. And um, one thing that's interesting is in All Inclusive, you play around with this kind of multifamily perspective. Um, but in All Inclusive, it's you have Amira and then you have her father, Aziz. Whereas in this, it really goes, um, it expands that. Uh, to be a lot more multi-generational. I think like it, it, it is such. Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't going to have this Abdulali character coming in so directly. I had originally thought that I would just write his story through Sharifa's sleuthing. And then my agent, Rachel Latosky, she did a lot of um, early editorial support with me. 
And she suggested that it actually would, we, we'd be able to bring alive this story a bit more if we, if I, if I wrote interludes like this, where he would come in and I worried that it would be too repetitious with all inclusive, but I love doing it. Like, I think it's a really fun way to write. You know, you get these multiple points of view, even though everyone is in the first person. Um, so it's a fun thing to do. I, I wanted it to be different from all inclusive in the sense that, um, and, it, and it, it did turn out to be quite different in all inclusive, Aziz, Aziz and Amir end up um, intersecting their storylines come together. And um, in, in Seven, uh, Sharifa and Abdul Ali's storylines stay separate and divergent. Although there are some places where I intentionally um, had a feeling of them coming together. Yeah, and I think that um, like towards the end of the novel, and I definitely don't want to give anything away, but a lot of it is what Sharifa learns. Um, from um, Abdul Ali and from those generations because the that's what kind of gets her started on on this trip is to research him and and so I think that research is really important she finds isn't necessarily what she thought she was going to and she she learns about him but then she also learns about something in her own uh, personal history. And then she also learns about a history that she had never imagined could be possible that has to do with one of his wives and um, her lineage. And um, that was a lot of fun to write. That, that last piece um, I wrote kind of very close to the end. Like I had finished multiple drafts. I'd done a lot of revision. And I, I actually created that whole piece uh, last because I hadn't, I hadn't been able to imagine it until close to the end. And I think I had trouble imagining it because, you know, as I was writing this book, I was uh, knee deep in all of the activism. I was knee deep in sorting out what my own, you know, personal traumatic experience was, which was very muddling um, at the beginning. And I think I needed to have some kind of clarity around all of that before I could imagine a hopeful storyline. And that last piece that I write uh, around his, one of his wives is a hopeful storyline uh, and a very fictitious, very fictitious, hopeful storyline of women's resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, one of the, the things that I really like is, um, yeah, towards like, as Sharifa is learning more about Khatna and she is taking up this activism with her cousins, it diverts a bit from her research on Abdullali and then like the way it just circles back to that. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's both. It is just very deeply personal experiences and then it is also this community-wide, multi-generational uh, kind of practice. And it, it's, there's, there's on one hand, how do you um, take steps to end it on a personal level? And then how do you take steps to end it on that broader community 
basis. What is the best way for us as a community to end Kutna? You know, there's these multiple approaches. There's, you know, trying to change the law in India, which still has not banned the practice. Um, there's, you know, trying to go after the cutters, which has been happening in Australia and in Detroit quite unsu unsuccessfully. Unfortunately, it's really, uh, it saddens me that uh, law enforcement can't go after these people. Um, so the, the, the place where I've kind of landed around all of that, around what my own contribution is going to be around this movement is to normalize the conversations around Kutna. Because it, it just makes us so squeamish to talk about, but what if it didn't? What if we could talk about it the way we are beginning to be able to talk about sexual harassment and sexual assault and you know, uh, abortion, about sex, about any, any of our taboo subjects. What, what if we just made this normalized um, so that people could have the conversations, decide for themselves, heal, you know, also that's the other thing. I think there's so many survivors out there that barely know how to put words to their experience. So that's sort of where I've ended up in terms of how I feel like I can fight all of this. There's other people who are very good at dealing with legislation and dealing with policies. It's probably not my work, but what I wanna do is just this normalizing thing. And I think that there's definitely so much um, to be uh, said about, like have, normalizing that conversation. Because again, just going back to how hush-hush it is, and how, um, and it, like this is in the novel and, and in real life, is how um, mothers are pressured into um, being made to believe that this is something that they need to do to show their uh, devotion. And if they don't, they're not proper Boras, and this is something that comes up um, in the novel as well. Um, so it just if if people could be having those conversations, um, talking to their friends about about it, and hearing different perspectives. And you know what? What I think happens in those in those conversations where the parents get pressured or the mother gets pressured because often the father doesn't know. But I think what happens is the shame of your own victimization gets echoed in the shame of that conversation. Why aren't you doing this for your daughter? And then the shame just clouds you over and you can't think. And then you say, okay. But if we had these normalizing conversations, people would say, no, that's bullshit. I don't need to feel shame about any of this. This isn't my shame. This, I don't, you know, the shame doesn't belong to me. So, so I think I'll just continue in that vein of getting people to try to talk about it. Yeah, it's just thinking about what you said about how fathers don't know and they're just, they're not involved. Um, and in Seven, Murtaza, um, he also is going on his own journey to learn about Hatna and how he can support Sharifa through all of this. Um, and I think the theme of their sex lives is something that pops up again throughout the novel. Um, and yeah, like, why was it important for you to 
write about that as well, um, like sex uh, and South Asian sexuality. And I feel like sex in the Bora context is just like something so specific and not really talked about, especially not written about. Yeah, I I think that um, it's really important to write about sex because it is such a taboo subject. And again, I love writing about the taboos. Um, and the more we, we, the more we do it, the better we're going to be at being able to normalize conversations about sexuality. The other thing too, is that um, Kutna has a huge impact for a lot of people. For some people, they wouldn't say so, but for a lot of people, it has a huge impact on their uh, sex lives. And I wanted to explore that in all kinds of indirect ways through Sharifa's sex life with her husband, Mortaza. And Mortaza is someone who is trying to figure it out at the same time. Um, and that was important to me because, you know, I, I like writing good male characters. I've done this through um, all of my novels where there's a good man in there. And I just kind of want to say to readers, male readers, like, be like Mortaza. You know, it's really possible to be that kind of partner who is respectful and open and supportive and, you know, really pulls his weight in terms of parenting and the home. And uh, he ends up, you know, Sharifa is a bit of an avoidant person in terms of her own emotional world. And he isn't. And the way he addresses the emotional issues is often by doing research. You know, he's an academic and academics love to do research, right? So he does a lot of research as a way to figure out his own emotional world and he helps Sharifa to do that. So um, he, he was you know, an important character to have in there to help Sharifa move forward. But I've also done this quite intentionally and in that I want, I want more role, if there aren't that many role models in reality, I want the role models to be in fiction. Obviously the focus in the novel is on, um, the survivors of Katna, but then also there's on one hand like ending the practice, but then also how um, how do survivors heal and how their partners are an integral part of that process. There's this idea that partners are partners of any um, survivor are allies in the journey. Um, you know that they're because. Uh, sexual trauma is something that we experience in the body. Uh, we have to experience um, the trauma in the body with somebody who is witnessing us and being supportive of us and kind to us and all of that for us to experience some healing. So we can do a lot of the healing on our own, of course, but there is something very important in doing the healing uh, with um, a kind and loving person nearby. The conversations that Sharifa has with Fatma and Zainab about um, how Katna has impacted their sex lives, I think that's also so important because, as you said, it's just, it's different for each survivor and kind of exploring the nuance. Yes, you know, one of the things I've really learned from the activism is that um, people have really varied experiences and people on both sides probably have varied experiences. So there might be pro-Katna people who have had major impacts 
and not, and people on the anti-cutna side have had major impacts or not. Um, and we, we need to be able to show all of that, I think, in fiction. We need to show all the experiences um, if we want to, yeah, if we want to have new ones. Thank you so much. Um, it was so wonderful to talk to you about uh, about your novel. Thank you for engaging with the book so deeply. Um, it, it means a lot to me. That was Manahil Bandukwala talking with Farzana Doctor about her novel, Seven. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. With your support, we'll be able to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Thank you all for listening today and thanks again to Banahil, Shani, Rhonda, Mona and Farzana for participating. Join us on Friday for the next edition of Writers Festival Radio, Crime and Punishment, featuring Katie Tallow, Scott Thornley, and Amy Stewart. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. <laughs>